0: We are in a series through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi and uh, we are 1 Sunday away from completing this and uh, so would you stand with me and let's read our scripture this morning Philippians 4:10 through 13 I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity So, Heavenly Father, we pray now that by your Spirit you would visit us, that you would open this Scripture to us in a wonderful way, that uh, we would understand it, that we would internalize it, that we would live it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, we're talking today about a secret. A secret of being content in any circumstance. We live in a discontent society, wouldn't you say? We live in discontentment about our marriages, about our homes, about our clothing, about the cars that we drive, about our jobs, about our income. And I was thinking this morning as I was Watching the news and mostly watching commercials, because there's more news, more commercials than program anymore. That the entire advertising industry promotes discontentment, and so we really need to learn the secret of contentment. What does it mean to be content? How do we how do we unlock the key or unlock the door? To contentment in our lives. But allow me some to provide, first of all, some introduction. Paul's letter to the church in Philippi is one of four letters that are referred to as the prison epistles because they were written during a time of Paul's imprisonment. They include Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And Bible scholars believe that Paul was incarcerated. Uh, not in a prison cell, but instead in somewhat more comfortable conditions under house arrest in Rome, in rented accommodations. And still, Roman policy uh, regarding prisons and prisoners uh, provided no internal support, no food, no drink, uh, no clothing, uh, no bedding, no medicine. And so everything that Paul might have needed during this time of house arrest, everything he needed for everyday sustenance uh, while he was being held, had to be provided and delivered by others on the outside. And so enter a man named Epaphroditus. Uh, interesting name, Ep, meaning from, Aphroditus, meaning Afro, referring to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And uh, so we know that Epaphroditus was a Gentile, that uh, his parents probably were involved in some way in the worship of Aphrodite, but that he had come to faith in Christ. And the church in Philippi, having heard that Paul had been taken into custody and that he now faced the prospect of imminent uh, death by execution, sent a representative from their church, who traveled from Philippi to Rome, a distance of just under 800 miles over land and sea. And he brought with him this generous financial gift and most likely some other material gifts as well to support Paul. Epaphroditus himself was an essential component of that gift because he was much more than a messenger or a courier. Uh, We don't know a lot about Epaphroditus, but Paul's description of him in in chapter 2 gives us a wealth of insight into his character and of his value to Paul personally. He refers to Epaphroditus there in Philippians 2.25 and Matt Sidley brought the message that contained this scripture. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister To my need. And I don't have time to unpack that this morning, but uh, I would encourage you to do uh, just a word study uh, on each of those designations brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. And kind of understand in those designations what Paul was saying about this man. During the time that Epaphroditus was with Paul, he became ill and he almost died, an an event that Paul said would have been the source of sorrow upon sorrow. But God had mercy on Epaphroditus, Paul said, and and he recovered from whatever that life-threatening illness may have been. And Paul sent him back to Philippi uh, with this letter in his hand. So he was the courier that, that brought this letter that we've been studying back to Philippi, including the instructions in chapter 2 that when he arrived, he should be received with honor and with joy for having risked his life to serve Paul in the advance of the gospel. And not surprisingly, uh, the arrival of of Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome was an, an occasion of great encouragement for Paul for all of the reasons I've already mentioned, but also because it meant, Paul said, that the Philippian church persisted in their deep concern for him. So in verse 10, Paul wrote, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And the idea behind the Greek word translated concern here is, is actually difficult to translate into English because it, it combines thinking with deep feeling. And the magnitude of what they had done in sending Epaphroditus and with him the gifts that he brought spoke powerfully to Paul of their deep feeling toward him being fleshed out in purposeful and sacrificial action. But what did he mean when he said, now at length you've revived your your concern for me? There's a sense as we view these words through our 21st century lens that Paul might have been issuing a backhanded rebuke. You could read it that way. And it kind of sounds like, well, it's about time you showed some concern. And I think a lot of missionaries contend with feelings like that today <laughs> when their financial support trails off, communication from th- those back home on whom they depend for support and, courage- and encouragement goes away. But I don't think that's what Paul was attempting to communicate because he followed it followed it up by affirming that he knew that they were concerned what they lacked was opportunity he says maintaining communication personal connection wasn't so easy in those days there was no post office uh, no telephone no internet every message had to be delivered personally carried by a messenger over land and sea 800 miles in those days was a long long ways uh, there were no freeways finding an appropriate messenger might have been a significant challenge. Connecting with Paul at all would have been very difficult given the irregular uh, recent circumstances of his own life. So Paul's greatly encouraged. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Notice that phrase, in the Lord, again. We've, We've been observing that phrase. Rejoicing because of the Philippians' magnanimous gifts, that demonstrated their renewed deep concern for him? Remember that that in the opening verses of chapter 1 of this letter, Paul celebrated the Philippians' long-term partnership in the gospel. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in verses 15 to 16 of chapter 4, he reminded them, And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. To the church in Philippi supplied the bulk of Paul's missionary support. But Paul wants them to know two very important things. First of all, in verse 11, he says in so many words, I'm not whining. I'm not whining. Paul isn't frustrated. He isn't dissatisfied. His happiness or his sense of self-worth does not require material Prosperity, even material comfort for that matter. And he's, in his words, not that I am speaking of being in need. I'm not whining. I'm not feeling a great sense of need. And we're going to explore that in greater depth in just a moment. Second in verse 17, he says, I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the money. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. We'll go deeper into that statement next week in the final message as we wrap up our study of this letter. But it's important because it seems, doesn't it, like many evangelists these days seem to do what they do for the express purpose of padding their own pockets. And their fundraising methods often seem to involve a fair amount of whining. Paul wants to express gratitude to the Philippians, but at the same time he wants to distance himself from even the hint of greed or manipulation. Going on in verse 11, Paul tells us why he's not whining. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content to be content. A dictionary definition of commitment will be a state of happiness and satisfaction, as in he found contentment in living a simple life in the country. And I looked at several different definitions, dictionary definitions of contentment, and, and every one I could find had the same somewhat passive, if you will, connotation. What each definition leaves you feeling is that contentment is a somewhat elusive state that that has to be found or discovered somewhere out there in the great big world. But I think you'll agree that the, the problem with defining contentment in terms of happiness is that happiness by definition is dependent on what happens on your circumstances. And a large part of what happens to you in life is well beyond your control. So if your happiness is dictated (laughs) by your happenstance, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. In contrast, Paul understood contentment not as passive, but as active. Not the result of dumb luck or, or simple good fortune, but rather the product of an intelligent, disciplined choice. If you're taking notes, write choice in large letters. Contentment has to do with choice. Notice what he wrote to Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I've always thought that was a radical statement. Doesn't that seem radical to you? If we have food and clothing With these, we'll be content. In American society, I think that's a radical statement. It makes you scratch your head. C.S. Lewis put this in perspective in his book, The Weight of Glory, when he said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Wow, that's worth reflecting on for a little while, isn't it? The writer of Hebrews issued this command. And notice that it's a command. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, if contentment is something that can be commanded, if contentment is something that can be commanded, then it is by nature a choice. And not the result of random circumstances. It's not a state at which you finally, someday, magically arrive. So, what exactly does Paul want us to understand about that choice? About contentment? The word translated content here in Philippians 4 unlocks, I think, the secret. The word is autarkas in the Greek. It's a compound word. There is first the word auto, which means self. We we know that word. Followed by the word arcase. And arcase means strength or sufficiency. And so together, the word literally means self sufficiency. To be content is to be self sufficient. When Paul says he's learned to be content, he's not saying he's learned how to maintain a constant state of happiness. He's not saying he's learned to maintain a constant state of satisfaction. Instead, he's saying that he has learned to be self-sufficient. And this is how he defines the mental discipline of contentment. Most Americans know that the motto of the United States Marine Corps is "Semper Fidelis," which means "Always Faithful." Any Marines here today? Ura! Your your army. You're hiding. What you may not know is that there's also an unofficial slogan, which is "improvise, adapt, and overcome." If you visit the Marine Corps website, you'll find these words on the first page. Marines are trained to improvise, adapt, and overcome any obstacle in whatever situation they are needed. They have the willingness to engage and the determination to defeat the enemy until victory is seized. The primary goal of the, the training that Marines receive, and as I suppose in other branches of the military, is to foster in every Marine a mindset that prepares them to deal with any physical, mental, emotional, spiritual hardship they may face in the defense of the nation. And notice with me those two words, willingness and determination. The mindset is not passive or merely reactive, but proactive. And I would suggest to you this morning that improvise, adapt, and overcome could very well have been a slogan for Paul as well. Let's look at the evidence. As Paul is writing this letter, he is in prison again and facing the prospect of imminent death by execution. Prior to becoming the Apostle Paul, you may recall that he had another name, which was Saul, and another significant career as a scholar, a rabbi, a member of the elite sect of the Pharisees, and a persecutor of the church. I suppose that if he was alive today, doing now what he did then, we would call him a terrorist. But the risen, glorified Jesus Christ met him On the road, as he was headed to the city of Damascus to terrorize Christians there, place them under arrest, and imprison them. And in that encounter with the risen and glorified Christ, Saul was radically converted and transformed. Afterwards, as he continued on to Damascus and lodged in the house of a man named Judas, the Lord appeared to a Christ follower in that city whose name was Ananias, And told him to go and minister to this notorious terrorist who was feared by Christians. And Ananias, understandably, said, God, you got to be kidding me. Don't you, who is this really, right? Don't you understand who this guy is? And in answer to Ananias' objections the Lord said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now listen, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now if you're If your boss was was giving you a a promotion and he uttered those words, (laughs) hey, congratulations. You've just been exalted, and now for the rest of your life, you're going to suffer. I think you'd balk at that. See, from the beginning, God's call on Paul's life was a call to suffer for the name of Jesus. The World War II German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote that when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Paul, as for many, many believers down through the centuries, suffering and death for the name of Jesus has been a reality. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul listed almost in bullet form some of what that suffering had looked like for him. Labors, imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Even when Paul and Silas first evangelized the city of Philippi, it's recorded in Acts 16, they were attacked by a mob. They were publicly stripped naked. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into the deepest part of the local prison with their feet fastened securely in stocks. And let me ask you what you would do personally in those circumstances. I'm pretty sure what I would do. I'd complain. I'd whine. I'd call my lawyer if I had one. I'd call the elders of Life Point to bail me out. What did Paul and Silas do? With their bodies bruised, their bodies bleeding, they prayed and sang hymns of praise to God through the darkness of the night so that everyone in the jail, including the jailer himself, could hear. And then God sent this surgical strike earthquake precisely located that it it caused the cell doors to open, the chains to fall off of every prisoner, And the jailer, assuming that his prisoners had all escaped, realizing that his life would be forfeit as a result, drew his sword and prepared to take his own life. But then came the voice of the apostle out of the darkness of the jail cell. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're all here. And in total amazement, the jailer asked them, What must I do to be saved? And that night he and his entire household believed in Jesus and were baptized. See, understand that it was the contentment of Paul and Silas in pretty dire circumstances that enabled them to give thanks, that enabled them to praise God that night. And it was their contentment that became the catalyst for the jailer's repentance and the platform for his evangelization. Finally, Paul says contentment is a secret to be learned. Look back with me, if you will, in, to verses 11 and 12 of Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance, and need. Remember, Paul was thankful and rejoicing for the gift, yes, but primarily and more importantly for what it represented in terms of the Philippians' concern for him. So he wanted them to understand, I'm not rejoicing in the gift because I am in need. I was content before your financial gift arrived. I'll be content while I have it. And I'll be content... When it's gone, and this contentment, this self sufficiency, this inward strength was something Paul had to learn, and he wanted the Philippians to learn it as well. Notice these three, uh, these four three word phrases in verses eleven and twelve. I have learned. I know how. I know how. I have learned. Contentment is a secret to be learned. Paul had learned it. He would probably say, I'm still learning it. In whatever situation, in any and every circumstance, in each experience of adversity, he had learned to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Notice the pairings in this passage. Abounding and being brought low, facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. He wanted the Philippians to learn it because they were experiencing persecution from outside the church. They were experiencing conflict within the church. And Notice what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in chapter 4 of his letter. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, what's he describing? (laughs) He's describing discontentment. Malignant desires and passions that lead to coveting and conflict. Even murder, he says. Is that what was going on between Euodia and Syntyche and those who were aligning themselves with them in the church at Philippi? Probably. Probably. It always comes down to power, influence, position, See, contentment is, in fact, a secret to be learned. I would venture to say that the vast majority of Christians never really learn this secret, this skill of contentment. Instead, they grow through life dissatisfied, disappointed, discontent, and that's their condition when they exit this world. Well, what's the secret? It's right there in plain view in verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You might say, Well, that, that doesn't sound like self-sufficiency at all to me. Oh, but it is. See, the secret that that Paul had learned and that you and I need to learn in every experience of our lives, whether we're abounding or being brought low, facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need is to improvise, adapt, and overcome in the strength and the power of Christ. Christian contentment is inward adequacy that's the result of the inward presence of Christ in our lives, a demonstration of supernatural spiritual fortitude, spiritual strength. And this declaration of Paul that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is so often taken out of context and misused. Some read it and and conclude, in the strength of Christ, I can have it all. I can do it all. I I never have to be brought low, never have to face things uh, like hunger or need. (laughs) That is not at all what Paul is saying here. And it should never be used that way. He's telling us that the strength of the Lord yields contentment. It doesn't always produce plenty, but it gives strength through times of hunger. It doesn't always cause us to abound, but it strengthens us for our time of need. God's strength is expressly given for and, and most clearly displayed in times of humiliation, times of hunger, times of deficiency, times of illness, even times of death. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To Timothy he wrote, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Again to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus 2 Timothy 4.17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The strength of Christ doesn't mean that you and I don't have to be engaged. Notice what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but the grace of god that is within me you hear what he's saying there he's talking about working hard expending yourself extending yourself straining forward paul wrote in philippians 3 toward what lies ahead. But he said, I did it all not by my own strength, not, not by my own ingenuity, not by my own intelligence or cleverness, but by the grace of God that was within me. And so he wrote in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Work out what God is working in. So contentment, autarches, tells us that we are to be fully engaged in the work of the gospel, in the advancement of the kingdom, working hard, exercising self-control, self-discipline, self-rule, self-sufficiency. And as we work hard, the grace of God works in us and through us and beyond us. We work out the salvation that God is working in us. What's the secret of contentment? I can do everything God purposes for me to do. I can improvise, adapt, and overcome in any and every circumstance because it is Christ who strengthens me. And it's the strength of the Lord that enabled Paul to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me ask you this morning, you got contentment? You got contentment? Are you looking for contentment today? Are you wishing for contentment, hoping for contentment, longing for contentment? Look to Christ. Turn to Christ. Cling to Christ. Invite Christ into your life and learn to draw on His strength For the circumstances, the challenges of your own life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we don't want to just work hard in our own strength. It just wears us out. It burns us out. Lord, we want to work in the strength of your spirit. Strength that you supply because you are fully alive in us. Lord, we want to learn that secret that you can do, that we can do all the things that you purpose for us to do, even in the most difficult of circumstances, because you live in us. May that be true of each of us today. For those who are standing outside of the kingdom of God today, those who don't know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that today might be the day that you grant to them the gift of faith that leads to life and leads to contentment. And for the Christians who are here today, who I think are most of us, Lord, may we allow you to live your life fully in us, and not get in your way, and not throw up excuses about why we can't do the things you're calling us to do. But to realize that as you call us, you grant us the strength for any and every circumstance, any and every endeavor that you call us to. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.